This episode is sponsored by Marvel Strike Force. If you're looking for a superhero-themed mobile game, look no further. Marvel Strike Force is a mobile squad RPG that allows you to battle with your favorite team of superheroes and supervillains in a fight to save the universe against threats like Doctor Doom and Apocalypse. Your goal is to power up your favorite characters to complete missions, unlock gear and other resources, and beat other players in PvP modes like Alliance War and Real-Time Arena. The game is currently celebrating its 6 year anniversary, and they're letting new users in on the celebration by providing free stuff, courtesy of our unique link in the show notes. The anniversary consists of weekly events and bonuses, and if you complete each event, you can receive special rewards and skins. Make sure to log in each day and each week to take advantage of all of the new characters that are being released specifically for this event. This will be Marvel Strike Force's most generous event to date, so don't miss out. We've received a unique promo code, so new users can follow our link in the description and use the promo code MAXPOOL. That's M-A-X-P-O-O-L. Thanks to Marvel Strike Force for sponsoring this episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Slash Film Daily for Tuesday, December 20th, 2022. On today's episode of the show, we are going to gather around the virtual water cooler and talk about what we've been up to. My name is Ben Pearson. I'm an editor at SlashFilm.com, and I'm joined on today's episode by Slash Film editor Jacob Hall. Hello, hello. All right, Jacob. Uh, I just want to, before we dive into this, just want to let the listeners know that uh, as the holidays quickly approach here or are, are actually unfolding in, in some circles, uh, our schedule may be a bit scattered in terms of the podcast throughout the whole rest of this year, really. So please bear with us if we skip an episode or something. I'm not entirely sure what the day, like I, I doubt very seriously that we're going to have an episode on December 26th, for example. So, um, you know, just uh Bear with us. Enjoy the, the holiday season. And uh, we'll be back with you sort of in full force, I think, in, in early January. So, um, all right, let's get into it, Jacob. What have you been uh, reading recently? Well, I've been doing a lot of reading because I have been doing a lot. Um, I, all I'll say is um, trying to sell a house in December, November, December of 2022 is a uphill battle. And I think I've lost about three years of my life over the past <laughs> six weeks. Um, so I've been sitting at home. Um, mostly reading and mostly watching old episodes of The Amazing Race on Paramount+. Plus. Um, so I'm, I'm going to be a little useless on this podcast. <laughs> I'll do my best. I, I'll start by a, a book I hardly recommend. If you listen to this podcast, this is probably a book you should read. It's called A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away by Paul Hirsch. Uh, ben, have you heard of this book? I own this book, but I have not had a chance to read it yet. I'm currently reading uh, a, another book on editing by um, Walter Murch. I don't remember the name of it. It's uh, like Blink of an Eye. It's no, it's it's. Uh, I guess it's not technically by Walter Murch. It's a it's a series of conversations that he had with a, a colleague of his, the guy who wrote The English Patient. Um, and it's so it's basically like an, an oral history of Walter Murch, who's a, a famous editor who. And, and sound designer who worked on, you know, The Godfather and all these different classic movies, uh, just talking about all sorts of things, a lot of filmmaking stuff, but also just like philosophy and all sorts of uh, interesting things. But I, I do have this Paul Hirsch book that you're reading, and I'm excited to, to dive into it uh, after I finish this other one. Yeah, uh, this book is it's Paul Hirsch's memoir. Uh, he was, he's the Oscar-winning editor. He's one of the editors in Star Wars. He edited Carrie, Planes, Trains, Automobiles, Ferris Bueller's Day Off, uh, just a number of classics, but he's also edited a number of duds, like in Disasters. He edited um, uh, The Adventures of Pluto Nash with Eddie Murphy. He edited um, uh, Warcraft. He edited just stinkers, uh, in addition to the absolute classics. And he's worked with Brian De Palma. He's worked with George Lucas. He's worked with uh, uh, just all these legends and non-legends and like, you know, working directors and people who vanished in the blink of an eye. And he just has stories. He has stories from 
making of Star Wars that I found so enlightening. Like, base, like here's the kind of story that if you find this story interesting, you will enjoy this book. He describes how the way the scene in Star Wars, Ben, where Obi-Wan rescues Luke and brings him and R2 back to his house where they watch the projection of Princess Leia. She's helping Obi-Wan Obi-Wan Hope. The way that scene was originally written and shot was that um, they sit down and they watch Princess Leia saying, help me Obi-Wan Kenobi, you're only hope. And then Obi-Wan Kenobi talks about the Clone Wars and talks about the lightsaber and talks about um, Anakin Skywalker and, and the death of Luke's father. And Paul Hirsch in the editing room says, you know, they watch this young woman beg for their help, then talk for 10 minutes. It makes them look like jerks. But what if we rearrange the scene so they talk first, get the exhibition out of the way, and then they watch the projection, and then they say, let's get out of here, we have a mission. And it changes the entire scene. It changes yeah. the, a fundamental sequence in a, in a movie everybody knows by heart. And if that kind of anecdote interests you, if you're learning about those details, about classic and not classic movies, and how editing really changes things, and also great stories about, about having disastrous meetings with Francis for Coppola, about turning down Back to the Future, about uh, all the things that went wrong um, in the adventures of Pluto Nash, which is a great chapter because it really goes into detail about how that movie failed as hard as it did. Um, I found this incredibly fascinating. Uh, and also it's his chapter on editing Mission Impossible 4 is a joy because it sounds like Bad Robot's a very fun place to work and Brad Bird is a character to work <laughs> with. Um, this book is... Uh, I found it massively entertaining. I, I literally couldn't put it down. Like I would, I generally Ben, I try to set aside set aside reading time. Like I will go to a bar, I'll read for an hour and a half, or I will go to a park, I'll read for an hour and a half, and I'll make sure like I just get my reading done, and before I have to do other things, you know, work related or house related. But I literally couldn't stop reading this. I literally would be, walk around the house within my hands and like <laughs> read it between house stuff. It, it was it was that good. I love it when that happens. Okay, that's great. So that's called A Long Time Ago in a Cutting Room Far, Far Away. Sounds like uh, if anybody's looking for a last-minute uh, gift idea for, for Christmas or something, that might be a, a good candidate. Um, Jacob, what else have you been reading? Uh, I'm in the middle, I'm near the end, actually, of Cameraman by Dana Stevens. And this is uh, a sort of biography of Buster Keaton, the silent film comedian, you know, the, the iconic silent film uh, uh, actor, writer, filmmaker, um, comedian, uh, all of the above, who made a series of classics, like bona fide classic uh, shorts from for the 19-teens, the 1920s, before his career kind of trailed off. Um, but it's, this is not a straightforward biography. It's not just he was born, he lived, he died. The thesis of what Dana Stevens is writing here is that Buster Keaton, being born in 1895 and dying in 1966, uh, represented um, the time period of the most massive, major uncompromised shift in American society and culture imaginable and how his life parallels every major change in pop culture, technology, society, politics, etc. And that sounds like a very ambitious uh, book to write and it is, but she pulls it off. It's the kind of thing where when discussing, when, when you get to chapter about his uh, Buster Keaton being a vaudeville child star, being a kid who worked, you know, multiple shows a day with his parents instead of going to school and was essentially, um, by modern standards, an abused kid in, in, in an abusive home. Um, the, uh, she, she, that chapter is also about the rise of child welfare and, and the organizations that were created in the late 1800s to take care of kids and how they clash with vaudeville. Or in, in a chapter about um, a Buster Keaton film about um, portable housing and how um, in, the, in the 1920s there was a rise in... Um, houses being made by Sears and Roebuck to be shipped, you know, by train in two cars that you can then be built. She goes into the history of 
that, of, of how this is becoming more affordable and, and, and transport like that. Hmm. Or I just finished a chapter about dealing with Buster Keaton's uh, handful of very unfortunate blackface routines and how um, blackface and its perception shifted, uh, especially among black performers in the 1920s. Um, so it's, it's literally a book about Buster Keaton's life that's also about the 70 some odd years of American life where literally everything changed and how his life reflects all of that. I mean, there's a the chapter about, about, about um, Fatty Arbuckle, the comedian who uh, gave Buster Keaton his big break on screen by making him a co-director and a co-star, delves into how Arbuckle was the very first movie star. He was the very first person whose name sold movies, uh, which is you know, thing we, that thing, thing that would last for a century and still going on today. People still go see movies based on actors' names. But one, one person had to do it first, and it happened on Buster, while Buster Keaton was working with him. So it's one of the most ambitious film books I've ever read. And uh, if you like history uh, intermingled, with your pop culture, or if you like politics intermingling with your pop culture, uh, Cameraman by Dennis by Dan Stevens is um, one of the most exciting books I've read in a bit. Man, okay, another uh, glowing endorsement there. I'm, I'm excited to uh, to check that one out as well. Um, okay, let's transition into what we've been watching. Jacob, you and I had the chance to see Avatar The Way of Water. I know uh, the, the podcast yesterday, uh, Peter and Ryan chronicled their thoughts and did a whole big spoiler discussion about that. Um, but, you know, this is the sequel to the biggest movie of all time. I feel like we're going to be talking about this movie for a little bit. I think it's only fair that you and I weigh in here. So what did you think about Avatar The Way of Water? I like it. In fact, I, I, I'm, I'm annoyed how much I liked it. I, I, I even loved it. I'm somebody who, who thinks Avatar 1 is pretty good. It's definitely, for me, on the lower end of James Cameron's movies, you know, better than Piranha 2, you know, worse than pretty much everything else. But worse is still, you know, you know it, it's still a good movie. Um, but I feel like James Cameron uh, spent the last goodness thirteen years, sort of like looking at you know maybe what people responded to and didn't respond to in Avatar and double down on things that worked while easing off on things that didn't. It's, I, I know James Cameron is a problematic dude, and I know there's stuff here that people are rightfully annoyed and angry about. But Ben, I'm not sure it's controversial to say that James Cameron can direct the hell out of a movie uh, and the earnesty, sorry, the earnestness mm-hmm. and the scope and the imagination here is for me unparalleled uh it is i was happy to return to pandora and i spent three hours there and and i'm excited for avatar 3 in a way i was never excited for avatar 2 that's i think that's a glowing endorsement yeah it is and i you know sort of like against my better judgment i i actually agree with you because i revisited the first avatar um the the night before like whatever it was the wednesday night i guess before i saw the new movie on thursday and came away from which for the first time in in 13 years i saw the movie once in the original once in theaters and that was it and then uh rewatched it and was just very disappointed by it like the um i just kept thinking to myself like this this is the movie that is like the biggest movie of all time it's just kind of uh there's so many glaring issues with it that I'm, I, I just could like almost couldn't believe it. And I didn't really connect with it on an emotional level at all. I found myself questioning a lot of the character's decisions and, and just um, sort of standing at it from arm's length. And I thought Avatar The Way of Water did a really good job of um, eliminating that barrier to some degree, maybe not fully, but at least pulling me in a little bit closer than the first movie did. So I, I liked it a lot more than the first film. Um, I think there are still, you know, some <laughs> some issues with this movie, but it's it's also uh, like it, it builds up to this incredible action finale that is really, really, really well orchestrated. 
And it also just like, I know it's, it's maybe even like stupid to say it, but this movie looks incredible in a way that like the, the blockbusters that we get even this year, even in 2022, like if you look at something like, and I, I please do not take this the wrong way. This is not uh, an indictment or, you know, me like casting aspersions on the people who work incredibly hard at visual effects houses who are like pushed beyond their limits and time crunched and, you know, working their fingers to the bone uh, under pretty brutal conditions that have been well documented over the past, you know, five years, let's call it. Um, this is not anything against these people at all. But if you look at something like Thor, the dark world or not Thor, Thor, the dark world, Thor, love and thunder, which came out earlier this year. And then compare that to avatar, the way of water. It's just like night and day. It's, it's like the, they're almost in different mediums, <laughs> you know, like the, the level of, um, of visual effects, uh, fidelity, quality, whatever you want to call it. Um, it's just incredible. And we were talking about this in our Slack channel, but like the idea that there are actual human characters running around next to these, uh, Navi characters and like, the scale and the interactivity between those uh, characters feels just real. It feels like you're, you know, the part of your brain and the part of my brain anyway, as a viewer that um, always pushes up against stuff like that when it looks bad uh, because it looks so good. It just helps to, you know, immerse you into the story that much more. It's just really incredible. And and maybe it's not even fair to compare those to those movies because Avatar has had so many years of development and so many years of uh, you know being being able to work on all this stuff and sort of fine tune everything, I guess maybe Avatar three might be um, a better comparison with with something that has like a, you know these Marvel movies typically have what like a two year turnaround time by the time they're announced until uh, they they finally come out. So maybe something similar might happen with Avatar three. But man, I just I couldn't stop thinking about how incredible Avatar: The Way of Water looked, uh, even though I still have some some issues with the story. One thing I was eavesdropping on Twitter, a group of visual effects artists were talking because some bozo channel on Twitter was um, taking screenshots from the Indiana Jones and Dial of Destiny trailer and was saying, look at this, saw this clearly in front of the green screen. It's clearly studio lit. Look how bad it looks. And James Mangold, the director, came in and said, that's a location shot. <laughs> and which <laughs> led to a bunch of uh, visual effects artists chiming in saying like, yeah, people always, people always think they know more about our jobs than we do, et cetera. But the common thread they all started talking about and any um, and uh, some of are linking to um, filmmakers like um, James Gunn and other people uh, chiming in on this as well. Was that um, visual effects artists work as hard as they can? Bad visual effects are never the result of of especially in twenty twenty two of a bad company. All the visual effects companies that couldn't deliver are out of business. The ones who are around are the ones who are working too hard and are working under too much pressure, working for too little money to get things done. And bad visual effects are the results of studios, producers, or filmmakers who don't know what they want, mm-hmm. change your mind at the last second, who make unreasonable requests. I mean, that was the uh, Tom Hooper and Cats, famously, you know, didn't know, like, refused to do put his actors in mocap suits, um, to force individual like artists to create their digital fur for Cats in a far more roundabout, difficult, painful way that ruined it, <laughs> ruined it for everybody. Um, so my way of saying it is that um, James Cameron, you know, is the kind of filmmaker who is going to know what he wants and have a team of is not going to abuse the visual effects team. Like I guarantee you that the, the team of visual effects artists who worked on Thor, Thor, Love and Thunder know that a lot of those shots look bad. Yeah, they, yeah, they yeah. look bad, but they, they they are more aware of it than you are. Which shots don't work, and they're, and they're like about it. Uh, that's that comes down to leadership, and that comes and you know it's one thing about James Cameron is that for better or worse, he's a dictator on set. He knows what he wants. His way or the highway, and we can talk about how 
negative that is. That's a conversation that should be had. But it led to a really, really good movie made by a filmmaker who knows what he wants on a scale that most people working today don't know what they want. And in a year where we got Top Gun Maverick and Avatar 2, I look at, you know, Black Panther 2 and I look at uh, Thor 4 and I go, I like Marvel, but I kind of want more of these other things right now. I need Marvel to take a five-year break because this is what I want right now. I want these movies to feel like they're made by people who have genuine visions. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's, we could probably spend a long time talking about the comparisons between this stuff, but I guess we have more to, uh, to get to. I guess before we do that, though, let's take a quick break and then we'll be right back. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay, Jacob, you also have been watching some other stuff too. What have you been watching recently? Uh, I mostly... I've, because of my current situation uh, trying uh, and, and a house that we're trying to keep ready for uh, showings uh, or most of my stuff is boxed up in a storage unit, uh, my wife and I have been trying to be as, li- as less stressed out as possible. So we've been watching mostly old episodes of The Amazing Race, as I discussed in a previous episode of the show. We're up to season 10 of The Amazing Race. But we did find time to do some other stuff. I, I did rewatch Nope, the Jordan Peele movie from, from earlier this year. I saw it in theaters and I loved it. And I saw I watched it again 4K Blu-ray, and this is a top five movie of the year for me. I think it's so scary, so funny, so smart. It pulls off everything it needs to pull off. Um, when we do our podcast about the best moments of the year, uh, you'll be here. You'll be hearing me argue that uh, Daniel Kaluuya uh, sitting in his car saying "Nope" and locking his door is a top five moment of 2022. Uh, ben, how do you feel about "Nope" after all these months? I still think I think it's a, I think it's as good, if not it's as good as everything Jordan Peele's made so far. I think all three of his movies have been spectacular. You know, I, I have not rewatched it. I feel like a rewatch would really help solidify some things for me. I loved aspects of it. And then there were other parts that it was a movie where I walked away going like, okay, I think I understand what he was trying to go for here. And like the, um, you know, all the sort of like metaphorical stuff and the, the deeper readings and the illusions and all that kind of stuff. I, I, I felt like I was sort of on the same page, but I also left the movie feeling a little, um, uh, less than satisfied in terms of how it was executed because I thought that the big climactic action set piece, um, which has some really great imagery in it, was just cut in a way where I was like a little confused about what was actually happening. And like, I wish that the the plan was made a little bit clearer. And there were some things that I, that I sort of walked out going like, huh, all right. Um, but I, I appreciated, you know, obviously that, that Jordan Peele was like, swinging for the fences and really like trying to say something, you know, capital S uh, say something about the state of our world. Um, 
which not that many filmmakers are in that type of way, in that type of blockbuster sort of sphere, you know? So um, I definitely appreciate Nope. I, maybe on a rewatch, I would fall more in love with it, but um, that's where I am. Yeah, um, give it a rewatch. I'm curious to see what you think, especially with um, end of the year stuff coming up for our end of the year podcast. I need you on my team for that scene. With you. <laughs> this is this is all just you uh, haranguing people into. You're just you're probably having the same conversation with every other editor, just independently trying uh, to. Uh, I, 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 I favor. There are a handful of movies that I'm worried are going to dominate that list. That people are going to want five RRR scenes, they want five Top Gun Maverick scenes, they want five everything everywhere all at one scenes. And those movies could dominate the entire list. So I said, I don't want Nope getting lost in the shuffle. On that. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, and and for the listeners' benefit, I think we're probably going to aim for the second week of January to record that podcast. So hopefully that'll give you guys, the listeners, enough time to catch up on all of the big movies of 2022. I know that there's still some stuff like Knives Out hit, uh, I'm sorry, Glass Onion hits theaters uh, this Friday, or I'm sorry, it's Netflix this Friday after it's one week run in, uh, in theaters. And then like, um, Babylon, the Damien Chazelle movie comes out this Friday as well. Uh, there's several other things I think are coming out in between now and, and the end of the year. So we're hoping, hoping that, uh, giving that sort of buffer period into the second week of January, will give people enough time to catch up with stuff so we can talk about the big movies, uh, the big moments from those movies in a spoiler capacity without really ruining too much for everybody. So, um, put that on your calendar for the second week of, uh, of January and look forward to that discussion. So I, I certainly am. Uh, Jacob, what else have you been watching? I want to talk, I talked a few weeks ago, but it's also been a little while since I've been on this show. I want to talk about Violent Night real quick. The uh, movie where David Harbour plays Santa Claus, who's uh, visiting a um, remote mansion owned by a billionaire family when the house is invaded by thieves, um, armed, like assault rifle carrying thieves who are there on a, who are there to rob the uh, family safe and becomes diehard in a house with Santa Claus, like literally a magical Santa Claus uh, with magical abilities and, and like thousands of years old uh, fighting off, crim- fighting off these criminals and saving the family and communicating with a little girl via walkie talkie, like, like John McClane did with Al Powell. Um, ben, did you see, did you see Violent Night? Jacob, I hesitate to inform you that I did and I hated it. Uh, Chris and oh. I talked about it on a recent episode of the show. He was pretty disappointed with it as oh, well. I love this movie. I had so much fun with Violent Night. I, <laughs> I'm really bummed out to hear this. I, this is why I was for not listening to the podcast. I, <laughs> I think this movie is a blast. I think David Harbour is giving a genuinely good performance. I think the jokes land. I think the violence is crazy, including a certain climactic scene that will be mentioned on our podcast moments list. Um, I fully endorse Violet Night. It gets my two thumbs up, uh, ringing endorsement for something I'll probably watch seasonally. Honestly, I, I dug it that much. See, this is exactly what I was saying that like uh, the reason, uh, a huge reason that the movie didn't work for me is because I didn't think any of the jokes landed. But I think I even said in that episode that like I can totally see if you were on the movie's wavelength in terms of its humor, how this would work really, really well for people. So uh, I, I'm not surprised, Jacob, that uh, that you're one of those people that, you know, I, I know that there would be, I knew that there would be people out there who this worked for. And uh, I'm excited that you're one of them to, because, you know, this movie it definitely, <laughs> it takes some chances. It does some things. I, I didn't agree with all of them, but um, David Harbour, I think is, is sort of undeniable in that lead role. And, uh, and yeah, it, you know, if you're, if you're on the film's wavelength, um, I can definitely see how it'd be super, super enjoyable. So I just uh, feel that Harbour and John Leguizamo playing the villain, uh, are punching way above what the weight class being asked of them. And it really, the movie kind of falls into place around them. They're, they lend the movie such an honesty 
that I, I think allows the humor to actually flourish. It's move, if they had played their roles goofy, it would have been too much. But I think the fact that they treat that script seriously and treat their characters seriously, to me, like really honed me in on like the core of the movie in a way that uh, I don't think it would have if it was joke forward. And I don't think it's joke forward. I think it's character forward in a kind of a weird way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, okay, so I guess we'll just talk about a couple things that I've been watching recently. I caught up with Smile, the uh, movie I think was written and directed by Parker Finn. Is that right? Um, yeah, Parker Finn. Okay. Um, I enjoyed this movie until the very last scene. I, I didn't like the very, very end of it, but I thought everything else was very good. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I think even with my reservations about the ending, I still would definitely recommend watching it. This movie, I think, is going to be like one of the bona fide, um, you know, sort of uh, unqualified smash hits of 2022. Uh, financially, horror film of the year, beating out Halloween Ends and Nope and Black Phone, just. So- call it a combination of good movie plus great marketing. Like, and like, I'm, I'm shocked to have announced smile to yet, Ben. I am. Like, yeah. That's that hasn't happened yet. Yeah, I am too. And, and such a killer premise too. I mean, you know, it's definitely familiar if you're, you know, into the world of, of horror, you've seen things like this before. Um, it follows in the ring being sort of key examples, but, uh, but I, I think it's, it's done well enough. Um, and, and sort of has enough, uh, room to stand on its own to be its own thing. Um, that it, it, it's just like really, really thoroughly entertaining horror movie. So, um, Sosie Bacon, who I, I was not familiar with before this, just sort of being dropped into the lead role like this is, um, it, it's a really great choice. And I thought she did a killer job with this thing. So, um, I also love seeing Kyle Gallner, who has been in a lot of things, but just sort of quiet, you know, like a, a relatively small scale type of performer. Um, and he plays a supporting role here, but, I think, I don't know, maybe because this movie is such a big hit, I hope that that serves as more of a launch pad for him because um, I think both of them, uh, Sosie Bacon and uh, Kyle Gallner, deserve to be in, in you know more stuff. So um, fingers crossed that works out. But where do you stand on on Smile all these months later, Jacob? I really like it. I saw a Fantastic Fest where it has a world premiere and I saw again in theaters. Uh, what I like about it is that, yes, it is very, very familiar. It is very much the ring. It is very much a kind of procedural horror movie you've seen more than a handful of horror films, you'll kind of know the beats before they're happening. Um, but the movie is so scary. I mean, the actual staging and filming of it, it, it is so intense and it's so viscerally upsetting in its, in its execution. That's really, really hard for me to um, be mad at the familiarity. I think that if it, I think it's why it was popular. I think it's why it clicked with people is that uh, they, people got something that, that felt comforting in that, oh yeah, this is the kind of movie I've seen before but delivered in a way that was like just hair raising. Uh, mm-hmm. so I, I think it, this movie really works. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So a movie that I didn't think worked quite as well is Bardo false chronicle of a handful of truths, which is the newest movie from Alejandro Gonzalez Inarritu, um, who's made movies like um, the Revenant and Birdman recently. Uh, Jacob, I think you despise this filmmaker. Is that correct? <laughs> like, he, you know, you just my, don't uh, like his movies. My, he's my least favorite filmmaker working today. Wow. Okay. I think, I think the Revenant and Birdman are uh, two of my most hated movies of all time. Uh, all power people will like him. I will never see Bardo unless it was required of me at work. And now that I am the boss, I will never assign myself to see Bardo. So. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. So yeah, that, that confirms my suspicions that, uh, that you feel very strongly about his movies. I happen to really, really like The Revenant. Um, I didn't really care for Birdman all that much. Uh, 
anyway, I don't need to go through like every single one of his movies. Bardo is uh, his latest film. It's much more like, um, you know, something like eight and a half than anything that he's made before. It's a very thinly veiled sort of, um, it's almost like a, a therapy session, a cinematic therapy session. It, it stars uh, Daniel Jimenez Cacho playing a Mexican journalist who uh, becomes a documentary filmmaker and has spent the last 15, 20 years living in Los Angeles. Uh, he's from Mexico, originally moved to LA with his family and is sort of um, struggling with like the history of, of where he came from and what that means about his identity. And it's this is a very dreamlike movie. It sort of steps from one scene to another, one sort of dreamlike sphere space space into another. Uh, it doesn't really have a traditional narrative arc. All of these things are things that um, in the wrong hands, I really bristle at. Like, I do not, uh, this, this seems like there's a, um, it's a sort of a high wire act of a movie. And I actually think he pulls it off fairly well. I think there are probably a lot of people who are going to call this pretentious and, you know, up its own ass and, you know, all sorts of um, comments along those lines. I think if, you know, let's say Steven Spielberg, for example, made the same exact movie, those same people would not have those same uh, criticisms. And um, I don't know if that comes down to, you know, uh, Inuritu's reputation as a filmmaker or, you know, his place in the pantheon or, you know, compared to somebody like Spielberg or what that sort of um, uh, juxtaposition would look like. But I, I really think that uh, it, the difference is that like between this and something like um, The Fablemans, which is Steven Spielberg making a movie about his own past, kind of a, a thinly veiled, similarly thinly veiled uh, kind of memory piece about his own history is that uh, this movie just directly addresses all the criticisms that um, f journalists, uh, movie critics, whatever, have levied at Inuritu uh, over the course of his career and, and criticisms that he has leveled at himself a as a filmmaker. Like he talks about being derivative. He talks about being uh, unoriginal. He talks about you know, having imposter syndrome and like all of these different things. And on one hand, I can, I can see people, um, again, bristling at this and being like, man, this guy's won best director Oscar multiple times. Like this whole thing is, is kind of a joke, but I really think that, um, that even as a cinematic therapy session, there's some really interesting stuff to be mined here. So, uh, Jacob, while I know that you will never watch this, I do think, you know, if you're vaguely interested in him as a filmmaker or just the idea of directors, uh, you know, delving into the depths of their own life and mining that for um, interesting cinematic uh, imagery. Uh, if you're, if you're on board with those ideas and those concepts, then Bardo, which is streaming on Netflix right now, uh, is going to be worth your time. It, it's a little long. Um, I think it's like two hours and 40 minutes or something like that, which every single movie these days seems to be two hours and 40 minutes. I don't know why that's happening. Uh, but yeah, it's streaming on Netflix. I would recommend checking it out. I think there's definitely some really cool imagery in it. I don't, it's not going to make my favorite movies of the year list, but uh, I'm glad I watched it. And um, I, I'm curious to see what he does after this, because this really feels like a super, super personal um, project where he got a lot of things off his chest. And now what does that mean 
about, you know, serving as a foundation for what he does going forward. I don't know. I'm really curious to see what happens there. So that is Bardo false chronicle of a handful of truths, which even saying that title out loud makes me think like, I know that the people are going to come into this sort of like with arms crossed as like, my God, what a pretentious title, what a pretentious, uh, you know, guy, this, this person seems to be like, but I really think that, um, it does a pretty good job of sort of knocking down those barriers and, and really, um, pulling you in with this sort of dreamlike visions uh that that he orchestrates throughout this movie so uh well, that is- you said that title out loud my dogs are barking i had to mute myself so now they're <laughs> dogs are very angry at the length of that title ben how dare you they they share your disdain for alejandro gonzalez in your redo um okay well i think that's going to bring us to the end of the show jacob i think uh tomorrow marks your last working day of the year i'm not sure if you're going to have time to come on the podcast tomorrow if, if peter uh, is gonna have you come on or whatever but if we don't then uh happy new year to you merry christmas happy holidays all that stuff and i look forward to talking to you in the new year uh thank you for for making the time to uh to join us i know that you're like incredibly busy behind the scenes at slash home all the time these days so it really is a joy to have you on the podcast uh whenever i can get you and, and hopefully that will be even more in 2023 my new year's resolution ben uh for slash film is to be on slash film daily once a week and i want you to hold me to it wow that would be great i would love that yeah that sounds cool. awesome and uh and hopefully we will make that happen so you can find more about a lot of the stuff that we talked about on today's show at slashfilm.com and linked inside the show notes of this episode slash film daily is published every weekday bringing you the most exciting news from the world of movies and tv as well as deeper dives into the great features you can find on the site you can subscribe to the show on apple google overcast spotify all the popular podcast apps Please subscribe to our newsletter. There's a link in the show notes for that. Send your feedback, questions, comments, concerns, and mailbag topics to us at peter at slashfilm.com. Make sure to leave your name and general geographic location in case we mention your email on the air. Don't forget to rate and review the show, specifically on Apple Podcasts. That really does help us out a lot. Tell your friends, spread the word. Thank you so much for listening, and we will talk to you all tomorrow.